Alex DeWeese, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Appreciate thanks. appreciate you coming in. Uh, this is episode number thir- 63. Um, but I figured maybe we could start off talking about music because I know you're a huge music guy. Mm-hmm. Um, what type of music are you into and what was the best concert that you've seen recently? Oh, wow. I mean, that's a loaded question. I'm like all over the map. So at the moment, I'm really into The Grateful Dead. Um, I use that as kind of like a like a listening project for myself because their catalog of music is huge. They've been performing or they were performing from 65 through 95. And it's like one of the only bands where you can literally go back 40 plus years and find a recording that someone from the audience made from that particular show. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just amazing how much music they have. So, um, the concert that I just recently went to, I saw Den Company twice this summer. Nice. I saw them in uh, Bristow, Virginia at Jiffy Lube Live. And then two days later, saw them in New York at uh, City Field where the Mets play. Oh, cool. Which was a really cool experience. I'd never been to a baseball stadium for a concert before. Hmm. Um, so I was like upper deck uh, in like the the behind home plate third uh, upper deck, but... Uh, it was really cool to see them there. They they always bring out some really cool songs and stuff. So got to see a Casey Jones and an Uncle John's band up there, which oh, nice. I hadn't heard before live. That was really fun. That's John Mayer, right? He's in... Yeah, so John Mayer is like lead guitarist, mostly lead vocals. Um, yeah. How did you kind of get into um, Grateful Dead? I guess you've been a fan of them for a while, but kind of what sparked your your fascination with them? Yeah, uh, my buddy from high school, Dylan, his parents were deadheads, like saw the, the Grateful Dead over 100 times, um, followed them around from like 79 on. And so he was always really into them and would talk about how he, you know, saw Jerry when he was three and his parents, you know, were holding him. And <laughs> um, But I, I always knew about the band. I knew that they were this like amazing musical force, but... Um, there's something interesting about like the iconography of the band and the sound of the music. Cause if you look at like the symbols that they use, it's like the skull with the lightning bolt, um, going through it. And mm-hmm. a lot of people think like with the name and like the skull imagery that they're like a heavy metal band. And then when you listen to them, they're like this really relaxed, like chill country and bluegrassy band. Um, and so that was like this always interesting, um, juxtaposition that I wanted to figure out, like, why do people love this? Like, it sounded like boring music at first. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's something about like the fans know the recipe for the good versions of all the songs. And when for some reason that night they like throw all the ingredients together in the exact right way, it, it turns out to be a really, really special musical experience. What is it about the Grateful Dead that people like what what makes them so popular, so loved by people? Because I've listened to a lot of their music and it's I mean, it goes on and on and on. The songs are mm-hmm. super long and I think it is exactly what you're saying. It's very like chill and light music for a lot of it. Um but what do you think is like so attractive about that band? I think it's uh the culture around it is really, really um, important, right? It's like the the Grateful Dead doesn't exist without the hippie movement of the 60s and the kind of the the, uh, the origin of that movement in uh, Haight-Ashbury in 1965, mid-60s. Um, and there's something really cool that they were able to get a bunch of people together that just believed in this peace, love, you know, harmony kind of movement, and they were able to get that going basically all the way through the, basically 1995, that's when their last show was. They had people following them around the country, um, and, you know, for one night in one city, like, all of a sudden that, you know, particular culture exists for a couple hours, and then it moves on to the next city, and there's there's something kind of uniquely American about that, where mm-hmm. you're just going to get in a bus or get in a car and then you and your friends are going to drive, you know, four hours to the Grateful Dead show. And then you're going to follow them to the next place. And, um, I think the traveling piece of hopping from city to city is really intriguing for a lot of people. So Mm. the sense of like adventure that comes with the, the culture of the band, I think is really cool. Mm. Um, 
And then, you know, the music is obviously the big piece. Um, like something clicked when I saw them at City Field where every single person in the audience was singing all the words to Casey Jones and the entire stadium singing along with the words and that song's been around since 1970. I don't know any other groups or any other bands where a song that's been around that long can have multiple generations of people singing the lyrics. Yeah, Um, that's true. Um, That's super cool. Um, How did they form? How did Grateful Dead form? Do you know this kind of the background story about their kind of origins? So it's interesting, like being a dead fan, you kind of have to be like pseudo historian. Yeah. Um, and so I'm still learning the the history, but my understanding is um, basically it's Jerry Garcia, you know, just trying to form a band. He He's living in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and he's mostly like a blues, you know, bluegrass kind of singer. Um, but he meets up with uh, Bob Weir, who's like a 16 year old, who's just a really good guitar player. Um, Phil Lesh was more of like a like a classical composer, but he was their bassist. And uh, this guy, his name's Ron McKernan, who has been dubbed the nickname Pigpen, was more like a like a totally blues harmonica player. And um, him and Bill Kreutzmann, who's the drummer, they kind of all came together, formed this band that was going to be like a psychedelic blues band, psychedelic bluegrass band, um, and then you know i think unfortunately with that band like the the drug scene around the time is is a huge influence on them mm-hmm. you know they um exist because of the acid tests that ken kesey was doing um back in the day and that kind of shaped their kind of musical you know trajectory mm-hmm. um they started experimenting a lot more with different kind of dissonant sounds and um now all of a sudden what was maybe a country song is now this more like psychedelic long jam right um so it's kind of cool like uh the grateful dead's a cover band they do covers of other songs but they do it in their own you know psychedelic way which is Hmm. really fun to listen to i know you're also into some hip-hop too right have you been kind of a hip-hop fan for a while as well or yeah when did you kind of get in into hip-hop and who are some of your favorite hip-hop artists rap artists so I've listened to hip hop like my whole life. Ever since I got an iPod, I've been listening to rap music. But um, Good Kid, Mad City by Kendrick Lamar, when that came out, that changed kind of my understanding of what hip hop could be as an art form. Um, and have you ever listened to that album? Like Maybe not the whole thing, but I've heard a lot of the songs on there. So I... I take a more like old school approach to listening to music. It's very easy to like pick and choose your favorite songs and bounce around playlists on Spotify. But mm-hmm. I listened, that album was the first album that made me realize like you have to listen to the album in its intended order. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second title of Good Kid Mad City is it's a, uh, a, sh- a short film by Kendrick Lamar. And every song has a, uh, he uses this trope of a, voicemail call um, that someone's leaving on his phone as a way to transition from one song to another Hmm. and so each song is its own individual scene in the movie and the voicemails help you transition from one scene to the next and the storytelling aspect of hip-hop has always been really intriguing to me and um, Good Kid Mad City was the one that kind of showed me what it could be in terms of um, you know this really really high form of art and storytelling and so Kendrick has been one of my favorites um he's a he's a true poet he's a true artist Kendrick Lamar yeah you don't win the the Pulitzer Prize without being this just incredible writer um so he's someone like I call him like headphones music like you have to sit down in your room with headphones on and listen you can't do anything else Hmm. um Kanye West has always been someone who I've liked listening to a lot and a lot of people know that um about me He's an extremely polarizing figure, which has made it very difficult as a fan to like get past the headlines and stuff for him. Um, but in terms of the music, I've always really, really enjoyed um, his music. And the album rollout this summer was super interesting with the listening parties. And how uh, how is that album that just came out, the Donda Kanye West album? It's it's good. I think yeah. it it does what it's supposed to do. It's 
he kept saying he wanted it to be like a like a true hip hop gospel album, and he tried that on Jesus is King, which was really more of a gospel album that had hip hop elements. This album is definitely way more hip hop. You'd listen to it and think that you know a lot of the songs could be played on the radio, but he's talking about his you know experience as a Christian and um, just uh, his uh, basically. I'm not sure uh, what the intended purpose of that album is. If it's supposed to be played in a church or played in like a backyard, but um, I I think the album's fine. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite. Did album. you listen to it all the way through, like the Kendrick Lamar one, like yeah. song after song? Well, and that's an interesting um, that's an interesting album because the track listing has changed throughout the listening parties. So he wasn't necessarily playing every song in the exact same order. So again, it, interesting seeing that artistic process kind of unfold as he's revealing the music to the masses. That's that's um, uh, what I imagine something that happens on kind of behind the scenes all the time. Um, you know, you're constantly changing the track listing, but mm-hmm. we as the fans kind of got to see it every time he had a listening party. Um, so it was just really, really cool to see like this song maybe was the intro, but now all of a sudden he threw it in the middle of the album or now it's the outro. And how does it change your experience of the album as you know, the, the track listing evolves. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, is that usually your process of listening to music is I'm going to sit down with this album and, and kind of take it in as an art form, or do you listen when you run or do you listen while you're multitasking or like, what is your relationship to listening to music? Oh, I think it's, um, like when I'm, you know, I have a free period, I'll put music on and do grading or like I listen while I'm driving um, if I'm at my computer, like playing a video game or something, I'll listen to music. It sometimes takes a more passive role, um, especially if it's something I've heard a lot. But um, like if a new album comes out, I'm going to sit down and listen to it. No distractions, like put the cell phone away and just work my way through. And hmm. um, I think it's it's so interesting how easy it is to access music now. Um, and you know, new music's coming out all the time, but we also have this huge back catalog of stuff that we've never found before. Like there are bands that I'm still discovering that came out back in the sixties or seventies. And it's like my dad's music. And, um, Mm -hmm. so, and my, uh, my fiance listens to a lot of music too. So like she shows me bands and she showed me Neil Young, who's somebody who I never, really listened to before but once I sat down and listened to it and she explained you know how Neil Young's music is so important and why he's such a great poet um he he's someone who I've like really really picked up on and liked playing his uh stuff on guitar as well hmm um yeah it is interesting now with Spotify Apple Music and just how you can kind of discover new artists and you know new albums that you never heard of before I remember do you remember when you would go on the computer, go into iTunes and have to purchase the song every time and then build your playlist from there. Like probably spend hundreds of dollars just purchasing individual songs. Yeah. Um, do you make playlists on Spotify or Apple Music and kind of go through it that way or like your songs or like where do you place your music like in a certain collection? Yeah, I think I'm still a... It's weird to say that this is like old now, but like I save MP3s. Um, so I've I've had MP3s from CDs and stuff. Um, and you know, with with the Grateful Dead specifically, like you can find a lot of their recordings. There's a, an entire website where they people archive band recordings of albums and stuff. So I'll save certain versions of you know recordings of of shows and live stuff that um, I keep on iTunes, but. When it comes to Spotify, that's more if I want to listen to something that's contemporary, I'll search for something specific. I'll make playlists for um, like events or something. So uh, my 25th birthday party was a denim disco party. <laughs> and so I made an entire disco playlist of, you know, all the, the my favorite disco songs for that event or for that party. Nice. 
Um, and then, yeah, like I'm doing some wedding planning right now and we're, uh, Darnell is, uh, actually DJing the wedding. So no way. that's we're, awesome. We're finding music, um, that <laughs> we want him to play. And then, you know, he's also, um, anytime he's playing music at lunch, I, I always want to ask him like, who's this band and who's this guy. And so his music taste, especially with funk music lines up a lot with what I like. That's really cool. Um, and I know music has been a part of your life for a while, ever since your time at Gilman, mm -hmm. um, you were involved with music here. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of like the origins of your appreciation for music and traveling men when you were mm -hmm. a student at Gilman? Yeah, literally, um, when I was probably supposed to be doing work in geometry class, <laughs> I was singing during class, which shows you what Gilman sophomores can be like and how they do grow up one day. Um, but my friends who would hear me sing in class or like sing in the hallways, they were like, you should try out for Traveling Men. And I did it because my buddy um, was in the group since freshman year and just kind of convinced me to join. And um, I was lucky enough that I could kind of hold a tune and they accepted me. And um, it's like part of the reason why I wear a bow tie too is because I learned how to do it when I was in Traveling Men. And um, it's nice, uh, you know, as a science teacher, it kind of fits into that mode as well. But, um, traveling men was something that I just kind of got pressured into. And then it ended up being like a really fun outlet for me during my junior year and, uh, senior year. So what, um, so what are like the kind of major events or the commitment levels to being a traveling man? Like how many people are involved in traveling men and, how often does that group typically meet? And what are some of the major events that you perform for over a standard year? Yeah. Um, it, in terms of practices, it used to be every Tuesday night for the entire year. And it would be like a two-hour practice, I think, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, that might have changed since um, Robbie Ford took over the group. But at least when I was a student, it was once a week. Um, which sounds like a big commitment, but for an acapella group that wants to have a large repertoire of music, that's not actually that much practice time. And especially take, you know, the busy schedule that Gilman students already have. Um, it, it's, it's a big commitment for Gilman, but for an acapella group, some acapella groups, like the ones in, um, at, at least at Lafayette, when I was in college, we would meet twice a week. Um, and sometimes three times a week if we had big performances, um, the big busy time of year for traveling men's always the holiday season. Mm -hmm. um, so there were, we'd go to like Mount Vernon to, uh, I can't remember the name of the club, but there's some like social club down there that would always invite the traveling men and the glee club to sing down there. I think it might be the engineers club. Hmm. Um, and that was always a really cool space um, to, to perform in. But um, like we missed class for that. Um, there was a bar in Canton that would some alum or some company would always have an event there and we would sing down there, um, you know, singing holiday songs and stuff like that. Hmm. Valentine's Day is always a big, um, busy time for the traveling men when they bounce around to all the girls schools and doing serenades and stuff. So, hmm. yeah, basically any major holidays. What is a standard practice usually like? Like what 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 are some of the challenges of facilitating an acapella group? Oh, that man. like what what are I imagine that like getting everybody in sync and getting it to sound correct and that's just such an artistic skill forever is overseeing that yeah you you often start practice with blending exercises or you know just doing your normal warm ups like you would in like a sports practice mm -hmm. um, so you you kind of get the pieces together there when you're warming up. Um, but sometimes the practice might be you sitting with sheet music with your, um, your singing parts and you are learning the music while someone's playing on piano. Um, maybe you're working, like I was a baritone in uh, high school. It's probably going to be the baritones and the basses. Once you're starting to bring the pieces together because they're the foundation of the song, they practice together with their different parts to make sure they can hear each other and hear what it's supposed to sound like. And then maybe by the end of practice, you throw everybody together. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's very, very different depending on the week or the time of year. Sometimes it might just be we're running through the entire set list and we're going to sing all the songs. Um, but 
yeah, I mean, it, it was really, really fun. It's it, it's a skill that I totally dropped the ball on in terms of keeping up with it. Um, I, I did sing in an acapella group in high school um, and in college, but haven't done really much singing since hmm. um, college. Um, but being able to pick up music quickly is a skill that, um, you know, some kids who are really, really deep into the music department here, they really, really get to kind of capitalize on um, that mode of thinking or that that strategy of, of learning. Um, very did, different than other things. Did you have any music experience before joining the Traveling Men or before coming to Gilman? It sounds like you were, you were singing all the time, you were interested in it, but did you have kind of a foothold in like the musical realm beforehand? Yeah, piano lessons for a year or two, but then dropped that. Um, played guitar uh, with a guitar teacher for about six weeks and then decided I'm, this is not what I want to do. I'm just going to teach myself guitar. So, mm. Did you, le- of, you learned guitar? What, yeah, yeah. I uh, taught myself how to play guitar through like tablature, which is it's basically sheet music, but for showing where your fingers go on the fretboard and um, oh. showing rhythms in a slightly different way. Wow. Yeah. That takes some serious. But how long did it take you to learn guitar? I, I think I'm still learning guitar. Yeah. I've been playing since sixth grade, um, but it's uh, it's really tough with guitar because there's this whole side of of learning an instrument that involves theory, um, and I'm not even close to that level. I can play chords on on a guitar. I can even um, pick out individual strings, but there's a whole level of of understanding the structure of the instrument that involves you to understand some theory that I just I haven't gotten to that point yet. So still something I want to try to do, but um, working up to it. It really does. I mean, I know you can learn anything from YouTube, and I've had friends who. They're like, I'm going to learn guitar. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to learn guitar for like three weeks. And then, you know, and then you forget about it or you get busy with something else. And it, it's it's hard. It takes a lot of like serious um, discipline, commitment to do that. So when do you find time to practice? During the start of the pandemic was a lot of time for that. Um, but the uh, I think now it's more if I find that I've got an hour before you know, I'm supposed to go meet up with my parents and I'm waiting for my fiance to get ready. Like I'll just pick up the guitar and pluck away for a little bit. Hmm. It's been harder now just that my life's gotten a lot busier, but, um, I think finding that window of time, whether it's on a Saturday morning or like right after I come back from work and I just want to decompress for a little bit before I start making dinner or clean up the house or whatever. Um, that's kind of when I'll find time. I try to squeeze it in if I can. I always wish I knew how to play an instrument. I picked up the piano a little bit in college, but like I said, it's just, you have to stay with it. And, um, so, so traveling men and acapella groups from high school to college, what were the major like differences or changes that you felt in that experience other than maybe a little bit more time devoted in college, but were there any things that were different or more intense you found in in college the um choreography like you'd think a acapella group or any singing group just does the singing but especially when you get to college and you've got some really serious groups that want to do something cool they'll incorporate choreography into their um their arrangements so that was something that um, me and a buddy of mine were interested in trying to incorporate into our group um, was movement. Like you watch the traveling men now, they stand in an arc. Mm-hmm. And mostly that's just so you can stand next to your voice group and you um, can all hear each other. That arc helps you hear the other parts. Um, in college, though, they expect you to just be able to hit your notes from the starting point and just go with it. You might not even be standing next to your voice parts while you're working and you're moving around and that adds a whole other element to it. So um, the production quality is often a lot higher too. Like we'd sing into mics um, and we had our acapella group had our own mics and our own um, sound equipment for performances. Hmm. Um, So in, in, take everything that the traveling men does and just turn it up by a notch or so. 
Um, you know, the, the arrangements are going to be a little bit more intricate and more difficult where maybe not all the tenors are singing the same part. The tenors might be split at certain sections. You might be singing a voice part by yourself. Um, our group had a lot more autonomy in terms of deciding uh, who was going to sing which parts. So we would actually try out for lead solos, whereas here... Um, it might just be given to the senior or given to the person that, you know, has earned their spot just by the sheer time that they've spent in the group. Hmm. Um, whereas in college, you kind of have to like work for that solo and you have to beat the other guys in the group or the other people in the group. So thinking about um, your time at Gilman as a student, when did you first come in to, uh, to Gilman as a student and what were some of the other kind of extracurriculars or activities that you were involved in here while you were well, you were kind of growing up. Yeah, I started in the fall of 2004 as a sixth grader, um, and I spent seven years as a student here, um, which that's what's interesting about this school year for me. This is my seventh year as a teacher, so I'm kind of at that even point where I've spent just as much time working here as I was when I was a student here. Hmm. Um, extracurriculars that I was involved in, I was a lacrosse guy forever as every Gilman boy thinks they are at some point <laughs> in their journey here. Um, so I played lacrosse all through middle school. I played fresh soft and JV here. Um, and then I tried out for the varsity team as a junior. Um, but Johnny Foreman has a way of convincing you that you need to be with him in track. And, wow. um, he, uh, he, I didn't make the team, and I had made a deal with him to say, if I don't make varsity, then I'm going to be on the track team, and the rest is history. Wow. So tell me a little bit about that, because when Johnny Foreman was on the podcast, he was telling me about some ways that he would he would grab guys and convince guys of coming out for track. Yeah. I think the track coaches have a way of selling other athletes to try the sport. Um, so, like, lacrosse players – the winter track is always the big suck away from them. So if they're not doing another big sport, we like to get those lacrosse guys to come out with us. Like um, I coached Piper Bond, who I think you lined up with. Oh, it was a year after he graduated. After yep. he graduated. So but I know him. Yeah, so he um, he came out um, and ran track with us and was a, obviously a very successful lacrosse athlete, but um, was a really, really good runner for us. And we sold him on coming out for that as a way to get ready for the lacrosse season. And every year he went out for tryouts and I think you guys do like three hundreds or something on the field. He always said, I felt so much, so much better prepared than the guys that didn't do track because I've spent the time doing that and learning how to get off the line. And it's a no brainer. I think if you're not doing anything in the winter to just yeah. do winter track, I wish mm -hmm. I did that in high school because then you come into the season, it's a different sport and you're maybe using different muscles when you're actually playing, mm -hmm. right? But you're in such good shape. You you start off the year like running circles around everyone else, crushing the run test and feeling really yeah. good. Well, and I think tracks um, – what's cool about track is that it's a competition as a team. Obviously, there's a team aspect to the sport, but you're also competing as an individual, um, and often you're competing against yourself. So guys talk about their PRs in track and wanting to run the best, um, you know, personal time that they've ever run for a given event. And a lot of guys, when they say that they don't want to come out for track, it's because they're nervous about that aspect of being on the line and having to perform and do it right. You only get one shot. Mm -hmm. um, but Coach Duncan always says that running is the most egalitarian sport there is doesn't matter if I like you. doesn't matter if you've been on the team for four years. If you don't run the time, you're not going to be on the track or you're not going to be on the line. So you could be totally new to the sport and be crushing it and you're now on the varsity team. Um, that might change the next year if there's somebody else who's running better than you or you didn't do your summer training. Yeah, numbers don't lie. So that's really a reason that people say they don't want to come up for track is because they're I think it's they're just nervous to like have to be there, there's no like uh, safety net for them. Like mm -hmm. maybe if you're on the soccer team, you know, you might not be the best person out on the field, but you've got your buddy who, you know, you can pass it to and he's going to do something good with it in track. 
it's you and the other guy on the track with you and you have to go do it. Um, yeah, it's so different. I actually, so I never really played individual sports growing up because I was mm -hmm. always playing lacrosse or basketball, always part of a team, but I've been playing a lot of tennis now. Mm -hmm. um, tennis is one of my favorite sports. I, like, I love it. It's a great workout. But one thing about tennis is losing is, I think, a lot worse than losing with a team because you've no one to blame. Mm -hmm. It's like I lost a tennis match yesterday, and now I'm just thinking all day about the things that I did. And there's no – you can't even get mad at the opponent. You're like mm -hmm. – it's not even that he played really well. It's like I made those mistakes. I hit the ball out. You know, you can only look at yourself. So I think, I think for guys with track too, it's like – yeah, you're part of a team, but a lot of it falls on your own shoulders, and it's very introspective, and mm -hmm. you have to look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, but I, I think that translates over to the team sports as well. Like, there's this mental side to a tennis or a track or a swimming where, yeah, it is you, and you have to show up when you're asked to show up and, like, really perform kind of at the drop of a hat. Um, and all of that comes with, you know, focusing on your training and, you know, at least in track, your training directly correlates with your success in a meet. Um, and I think the same could be said for a team sport. If you as the individual focus on this particular drill or like, what am I supposed to get out of, um, you know, this routine that we do every day, if you focus during practice, then mm -hmm. you can see that translate to, um, better performance once the team kind of comes together. Like the thing I always think about is the do your job from, uh, from the Patriots. Yep. Um, I say that to my guys, um, varsity and JV middle distance, you know, you have this event, you might not be the fastest, but go do your job, run as hard as you can for that event. And then the pieces will fall together. If we, as a group all do what we have to do. So what was your experience like as a high school, um, track athlete here with coach Foreman? I was lucky that I had, I was a, a decent runner um, but I had a lot of really, really good teammates that I got to run with. Um, most notably like a Darius Jennings, who's like a, you know, once in a generation Gilman athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, he was really, really fun to run with. There's a great story about, um, something that people don't expect when I tell them about my track time here is that I was a sprinter. They look at me and think, oh, you're a you know, a tall, lanky white guy, like you must be like a middle distance or at least a miler. Um, and I ran the four by one when I was here and the four by two. And it was because a guy in the class ahead of me, JD Kameen had pulled a hamstring when um, he was running the open 100 at McDonough. And he was supposed to be the anchor of the four by one. And so Foreman and Darius found me and said, you need to learn the handoff for the four by one in the next five minutes because we're about to go run on the track. Next so, five minutes. Yes. Yeah. It was a really quick turnaround. So they, they threw me on the, the back stretch. I practiced it like once or twice with Darius. And, uh, the most comforting thing he told me was, um, and it was kind of disparaging on my part, but he said, don't worry, Alex, if you, even if you get out early, I promise you, I will catch you, <laughs> which I don't know if he was saying how fast he was or saying that you're not slow, you're too slow. But I think that's the fastest that I've ever ran was in that moment. Wow. But that was really fun. Um, and then how did you kind of decide that you wanted to pursue track at the next level in college? Um, how did that process play out for you? I uh, just walked on to the team at Lafayette. Um, the coach at the time, he didn't recruit any, literally any sprinters that year. I don't know what happened, but for some reason there were no sprinters on the team. Oh, wow. Um, and so I thought, well, if I liked it in high school and I have an opportunity to do it in college, like I'm going to give it a shot. Um, and for me, I found that um, at least my experience as a college athlete, um, and I imagine it's similar to you, it's basically like a second job on top of being a student. Um, and at least for me, track was an important part of my high school experience, but I was not in college to run track. Like I wanted to do well in my studies and I found I was spending way more time doing the track stuff and wasn't getting the, the output in terms of times that I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and so I decided um, at the middle of my sophomore year, I got to focus on 
um, other things. And I wasn't able to do acapella singing because of the time that track was practicing and um, all the time I had to put into it. So yeah, it's crazy how much you have to give up for a for a college sport. It really is full time job. I mean, I think. I think high school students have a sense of that maybe, but once you get there, it's completely different because now there are so many more opportunities around you and mm-hmm. distractions and things that you could be doing. And you've got, you know, four or five hours a day doing your sport, your full-time job. So I hear that. Yeah. Um, so chemistry is what you studied at Lafayette, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you first kind of fall in love with chemistry and why'd you choose that to pursue? My dad was a chem major. And that's why I wanted to do it, because my dad did it. Um, I think I thought I wanted to pursue pre-med, um, but was very tentative about it. Um, I didn't want to be in school for the next eight plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to do something right after college. So I studied chemistry um, in some ways because I wanted to have like a very clear set of skills that I had learned in college. Um, which I think is is unique maybe to the sciences in particular. Like chemistry has the content that you're learning, but there's a whole set of skills like laboratory skills and techniques that you're learning. Um, and I wanted to have um, a little bit of that as part of my education as well. So labs were tough in college, um, but I wanted to, to work in a science lab. I thought I wanted to do research and realized after working in a lab or two that that wasn't for me. And and when I found out that Gilman had a position for um, for chemistry, um, that's kind of how I got into here was we had 16 sections of chemistry the year that I was going to start working at Gilman because we were changing out the rollout of our um, our science curriculum. So every sophomore and every junior was taking chemistry in the same year and they needed someone to come in and help like take off some of that load for some of the other teachers. So I taught two sections of chem when I came here. So did you work in a lab right after college, or was this the first job that you got after graduating? This was the first job I got. So um, I remember calling uh, Henry Smythe to meet up with him the summer before my senior year in college, told him I was interested in one of the fellowships, and this was before the Penn Fellowship existed. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't really do a very good job of advertising it to people outside of the the tri-school bubble. Um, and it's funny how I got the job here. Basically, Smythe just said, all right, give me your resume and we'll give you a call if we need somebody. And so it was a, a little bit stressful because I was I kind of put a lot of my eggs in that Gilman basket. I really, really wanted to come back and teach here. Um, and I rem- it was more like a kind of like a handshake deal when I got the job. He called me and said, hey, like we want you to come in for an interview. I interviewed and then... Um, basically left and, and just kind of had to wait for the call back when uh, when he finally offered it to me. But yeah, it was it was not like it is now where you have to fill out a whole application to even get the interview here. And um, I basically just sent him a resume and then waited. Well, I think the fact that you went here and you're well known here too, probably played a huge part in that. But obviously you loved Gilman enough to even want to come back here. And what was it really about your experience as a student that kind of motivated you or inspired you that to right after college, come right back and teach? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I'm sure this answer, you hear it from almost any alum that comes back and teach or, or I mean, it, any teacher almost could give the same answer, not even just Gilman teachers, but I had really important teachers when I was here Um, especially teachers who were alums that came back that just understood what it was like to be a student here. Um, Like I had Guline his second year that he came back to Gilman and was teaching, Um, and it was cool to have him when I was a freshman. Um, Matt Tully was my track coach in, or my cross-country coach in eighth grade, and that was when he was a fellow, so I knew that the fellowships existed because he came back and was a fellow and was a young guy teaching and coaching. so I think the the teachers I had here, I could see that they really, really enjoyed what they did, and that basically inspired me to to come back and try to do it myself. What were some of the teachers and coaches that you had um, as a student that really shaped your um, your time here at Gilman? 
teachers, coaches, or advisors? Yeah. Um, Dan Christian is a big one. Um, he taught me uh, English 9. Um, so literally the very first class I ever took in high school here was Dan Christian's English class, which is an amazing experience. Um, had him again for his Dante elective when I was a senior. Um, and I actually still keep in touch with him um, now. And uh, he he's so, super involved with the Dante community and he um, and I did a like a 20 minute conversation for the Dante Society about Canto uh, two from Inferno. Um, basically a hundred different, there's a hundred cantos. So a hundred different conversations happened over Zoom where people who were interested in Dante just talked about a section of a canto for 20 minutes. And hmm. so he and I recorded one over Zoom amidst the start of the pandemic last year. Um, and so that was a really, really cool um, experience. But he is someone who inspired me to kind of come back and it was really cool being able to see him as a colleague um, and, you know, go visit his class and see it from a different lens, not just the student lens. Um, you know, Jim Morris and, and Tim Lauer are my colleagues now, but they um, taught me when I was a, uh, a junior with chemistry and a, a senior in physics with Mr. Lauer. Um, and it's been really, really rewarding to have you know, them as people who are important in my science education. Now they're, you know, deeply integral in my development as a science teacher. And they're my friends now, which is really, really, it's a, it's a cool transition away from this mentorship role now into um, more of a nuanced friendship, which is really, really rewarding. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Like, what is it like to have somebody as your teacher, somebody as your role model and, you know, you're kind of learning from them in the classroom and then coming back and being, their colleague, right? Yeah. Sharing offices with them and, you know, getting, I guess, advice as a young teacher. But how, how is that um, experience for you? It's, it's cool. Um, it's really fun to teach in some of the same rooms where I was a student. Um, and having like a, knowing what Mr. Morrison's class looks like from a, um, a student perspective helped me develop my chemistry class when I was trying to figure out what kinds of things should I be doing. Um, transitioning to first names is really <laughs> tough. Um, there's some people that I cannot call them by their first name or it's very difficult for me to do it. Like Coach Foreman is coach. Mm -hmm. um, coach Duncan is coach. Yep. Um, like especially the coaches that I've had have been have been tough. Um, some people I, I've been able to to get through it. So Tim Lauer is Tim. He's not Mr. Lauer anymore. Um, now has Gilman changed? Do you think from you graduated in what 20, 2011. 2011, Came back in fifteen. Mm -hmm. Has Gilman changed? Do you think from your time as a student here to what it's like today in certain ways? Yeah, definitely. Um, it is. I think easier for students to pursue things outside of maybe the typical mold, so to speak. So like I think about my time as a student, I was obviously academics was a huge part. Sports doing interscholastic sports specifically was huge. Um, and I was kind of at the time when it was basically interscholastic sports or nothing um, interscholastic athletes kind of ruled the campus, so to speak. Um, and now I don't think that's the case as much. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see it now in our students, a lot of them do participate in interscholastics, but we have a whole community of kids that like the arts is, is a, is a growing community. Um, kids being able to learn about technology and incorporate that as a part of their science education is, is hugely different. We have a robotics class um, that didn't exist when I was a student. Um, we have the robotics team that, that's a, a huge part of it. You can take computer science classes, which I think maybe were offered at Bryn Mawr, maybe, mm -hmm. or Roland Park. But, um, you know, the types of classes you can take have, have changed a lot, too. What goes on in that robotics class? Do you, do you help out with that at all? No, that's uh, Alana Resnick and uh, Lynn Nichols. Um, take on the the team aspect and uh this year ty campbell um took on the the class um so from my understanding it's it's a combination of 
um, some coding, working with um, what are known as Arduinos. Um, and so, so you're learning how to program um, an Arduino and, and doing some coding. And basically the, the goal of the robotics team is to take that knowledge and apply it to a challenge. So before the pandemic, we actually hosted a robotics um, tournament here. And the challenge was for a robot to pick up blocks and move them to a particular spot on the field, so to speak. And you're trying to do a couple different things, get as many blocks into that section of the field as you can and stack them as high as you can. And you get points based off of hmm. how tall and how many blocks you have in that area. Um, and it's cool because like, there's a huge competitive side to it. They allow you to steal blocks from the other teams. Hmm. So you have kids that are, you know, really, really intense with the design process that maybe they're more involved with creating the robot. You've got other kids that maybe that's not their skill set. They're more involved with the actually controlling the robot and moving it in the right way and doing that kind of practice. So I, I think the robotics program that we have here is really cool because it's still Gilman, so to speak, in that like Gilman kids are always really competitive. Yep. And while it might not always translate to competition on the athletic field, which for many of our kids it does, I think a lot of our kids who maybe that's not their bag, they're going to go to the robotics team or something like that and be competitive in that realm. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think even in the arts, and I've talked about how I've like sat in with Carl Connolly's art class a lot, but I feel like it's not competitive per se because you're working on your own like artistic creations, but even in like the artistic realm of Gilman, it's like, oh, that, you know, the, my classmates are so talented and they're mm -hmm. working so hard that I feel like I need to do that too. And it's just kind of in the spirit of Gilman, whether it's robotics mm -hmm. or sports or art um, or even music, right? Like it's not always competitive per se, but just the, the atmosphere is like trying to get better, trying to be excellent. Yeah. Which I feel like is a part of just the school's essence. And where competition, I think, can be a double-edged sword, so to speak, is, right, there's good competition where you're you're seeing what your classmate's doing and trying to be as good as you can be. Like, you know, use the art room. You know, Carl has all the seniors with their paintings on the walls. Like, you see what your buddy's doing and knowing, wow, I, I want to try to make something like that or, or try to surpass him. Um, but competition can, can easily take another turn where you're just trying to bring the other person down rather than you bringing yourself up. And mm -hmm. the challenge for us as teachers, I think at Gilman is to try to strike that balance where they can be competitive and have fun and, you know, but it's, it's all about us being as good as we can possibly be, not me trying to just get above the other person next to me. Yeah. And you have to really compare yourself to yourself in a lot of mm -hmm. ways and not to the other people. We can maybe look around and see what other people are doing. But I feel like I learned this lesson um, kind of in, in high school myself because a lot of my friends were very like talented at math and really good at math naturally. Mm -hmm. And I never was. like I had to work really hard at math. But I always tried to compare myself to the people in my class. And I was like, that guy, he's doing really well in the class and just wasn't, wasn't my back. Like I mm -hmm. worked hard at it. I tried to do it, but as soon as I started to compare to other people and, you know, then you start to hope that, you know, they do worse and you do better. Mm -hmm. So I, I hear what you're saying with that double-edged sword of competition, especially at a place like this where everyone's somewhat competitive, everyone's working hard. It can go either way. So, mm -hmm. um, I think that's very true. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about your chemistry and your physics class. Um, those are the two courses mm -hmm. that you that you teach. What goes on in those classes? So physics is um, it's freshman year physics, which is different than when I did. I took physics as a senior. Um, and what's interesting about physics is that um, math is kind of an integral part of everything that you're doing in a physics class. Um, and so the physics that we offer is algebra-based physics, um, which inherently means that, you know, you can be exposed to a lot of the concepts. There's kind of a limited set of scenarios that you can feasibly handle, but um, 
math seems to be the biggest hurdle that our students come across if um, either they're struggling or in, in terms of for us as the teachers being able to curate the content. Mm-hmm. So great example, we can handle one dimensional motion very easily with the math skills that we have, but throw in like two dimensional projectiles, you need to know trigonometry in order to fully understand that and make predictions based off of the the variables that you're given. Um, so we can't, at least with the freshmen that I teach, we, we don't end up going into that um, realm. If we were going to, we'd have to actually teach the math that goes along with it. Um, when do they learn the math? They're going to get some of that trig. If they're in the honors class, they might get a little bit of trig towards the tail end of Algebra 2. Depending on who you have for Algebra 2, if you're at the regular level, you might be doing a little bit of that. Um, but definitely in um, geometry, definitely in... Um, pre-calculus, I believe. They're, that's when the trigonometry starts to come in. So that's one of the biggest challenges for you is... Yeah, so the physics class I took as a senior is not the same as the physics class that I'm teaching now. Because um, gotcha. I ha- I was taking calculus at the same time as um, my physics class. Um, and what's cool about having physics first is that we offer now calculus-based physics. So they're not learning anything new, so to speak. It's all the same content, but you're now seeing it with the lens of, right, understanding the math through a calculus lens, which tells you a lot more about basically what's going on with this particular scenario. Hmm. Um, Like acceleration, something that we can't really delve too deeply into in terms of measuring the slope at an individual point on a curve. And once you take calculus, that's when you can say, okay, I know what a tangent line is. I know how to find it. I know the exact velocity at this exact moment in time. Um, so are they missing a lot of physics? And um, it sounds like it's... I don't sh- think so. Should physics be later, do you think? Was it better senior year? It's like maybe one of the big hot points in um, any designing of a science curriculum is when do you when do you want to throw physics at them? Yeah. Um, so I don't think they're missing anything. Okay. They, if they want to tr- take a true physics class, so to speak, you eventually have to take it with calculus. Um, and so I would encourage any student to, if, if science and math is their thing, calculus-based physics um, senior year is a really, really good course to take. Mm. So question for you kind of about your teaching and whether this is physics or chemistry, um, how do you make physics kind of interesting to someone who isn't really seeing it or doesn't really like that um, as a subject? How do you kind of maybe not convince that student, just inspire that student to think about it a little bit deeper or differently or in a way that's meaningful to them? Um, I can tell you that the, the lab portion of the class is a huge part of that. So like chemistry, for example, in the last year, um, you know, with the pandemic, we weren't able to do wet labs with chemistry, which I found to be, you know, a huge loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I've tried to do this year a little bit differently is incorporate more demonstrations and more labs into the class so that when Mr. Deweese is writing this equation on the board, it's not just a series of letters and numbers and symbols, it's now this thing that we saw happen in front of us. And we could see, you know, oxygen was produced from this reaction. And we, you know, we can see the bubbling happen. We can feel the heat coming off um, from a particular reaction. Hmm. Um, so having that piece to, to kind of add into a chemistry class is really, really helpful for, I think, bringing kids in. Um, and with the regular level students that I work with, I get kind of a big range of types of science students. Some kids are super into science and maybe really, really have aspirations to take some upper level science courses, while some other kids, maybe science is something they've struggled with a lot. Um, And so I have really tried to make sure that my classes cater, hopefully, to both camps, Um, and especially the kids that maybe don't think that they can be successful in a science class. I try to break things down in a way that maybe makes it more digestible or at least shows them that, yes, you can do some of this stuff. Mm. And even if you're not taking that super high-level class, you're still working with the material and you're still um, challenging yourself in a way that you know makes sense in a science class. 
I have to say that I think I think the tactile experience in the labs and really the teacher's love for the subject has such a huge impact um, in all subjects, but in, in my, just my own experience in chemistry and physics. My physics teacher in high school, he was kind of dry. He wasn't really that into it. And I feel like I would have maybe liked physics a little bit more. My chemistry teacher, I loved chemistry class because she was awesome, Miss Hallman. She, mm-hmm. like, we did the labs and she was just very spirited and energetic like had a lot of energy for that course. Um, is there a lot of memorization in, in chemistry that you, that students have to do and how, like, do they read uh, certain chapters or what's like the curriculum look like in there beyond the labs? Yeah, there's, especially early on, I have them do some reading because um, we start more in the conceptual realm. Um, so one of the the things we just worked through recently was the evolution of the um, kind of three early atomic theories. So what what does the model of the atom look like? What are sub, the subatomic particles, if there are any? Hmm. Um, and so we we have like discussions and readings that kind of help us see how the electron was discovered and how was that incorporated into the model of the atom based off of the available evidence. Um, and then you know, as that picture evolves, we, you know, get to write about it or we talk about it. Um, so that might involve more readings or class discussions. Um, but as my students are going to find out soon, um, there's a lot of very discrete skills that you need for a chemistry class. Um, so for example, um, every element on the periodic table has an average atomic mass. So something that I'm going to be lecturing about right after this Uh, interview is where does that number come from and that involves us basically taking a weighted average um, of all the different isotopes of a given element and we talk about you know how do we get this number with these weird decimals that that represents the average mass like what is that average mass what is that showing us Hmm. so there's a concept there but then a lot of what we're doing today is just doing math so it feels more like a math class today, but then tomorrow we might be in the lab or we might be reading something else. And so that, at least with chemistry, that's, that's why I love teaching it. And I love teaching three sections of it um, is it's different all the time. Hmm. So that's probably your favorite part of teaching science is the... The chemistry class? Yeah, or, or, or like how different it is and how you can apply it in different ways. And Yeah, yeah. And uh, like kids know a lot of this stuff but they maybe don't know why they know it um so like we talk about different theories of heat um early on in the class and i at the first thing i do is i light isopropyl alcohol on fire on the table which sophomores love fire um but i ask them why it's burning and they struggle to answer that question um and so that's kind of the goal of a chemistry class is you see this thing happening. Why is it happening? And yep. chemistry is like the rule book for why does this thing happen the way that it does? What do you think is the most challenging part of teaching um, science here? Hmm. Challenging part of teaching science. Maybe some things that um, you kind of battle with or deal with during the year that are difficult for you. Uh, time i think for both teachers and students some kids doesn't take that much time for them to figure out what's going on with this particular lesson or like i especially with the kids that i have some kids pick it up after seeing one example or me talking about it for five minutes um but some kids they just need the time or they need the one-on-one time with me as the teacher um and so it's a big, that's a big reason why I started the Science Help Center this year, um, basically in the same vein as what Guline's been doing with the math lab for years. Um, we need to have a space where kids who need that extra time can easily come in and find us mm-hmm. and, you know, do that one-on-one practice or get another example problem. Um, so I think time is maybe one of the biggest hurdles Um, that a kid in a science class might have is how much time are you spending doing that particular thing in the class? Right. Yeah. The one-on-one, just for me, because I had a science and math kind of block 
growing up, um, I learned the most from the one-on-one interactions. It's just what it took for me. So I totally kind of see what you're saying there. Sometimes in the classroom, it's it's difficult to piece things together. But when you're one-on-one asking questions and working through some things, um, it gets a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. So Alex, you're also a big reader, I know. And in, in the in the science department, we have some readers over there. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your book recommendations for the listeners? Um, so this is the first one. So um, it's more the series, not per se the book, but it's 33 and a third. So big music fan. You can take a look at this. Um, the books aren't terribly long, which is really nice. So you can read it in a day or a weekend um, pretty easily. But the series is about looking at albums in pop music, which pop music is a broad spectrum but basically albums that are important for um, popular music today, an author will talk about, they, they kind of have free reign to talk about whatever they want. So some of them go song by song and write an essay about each song on the album and what does that do? What's the story? What's the production history? Um, the one you're looking at now is more of a history of the band leading up to the release of In the Airplane Over the Sea. Hmm. So... Um, Neutral Milk Hotel is a kind of a notorious band in independent music. Um, they only released two albums in the late nineties and have never released anything else. And they're one of the most highly praised indie bands of arguably all time. Um, and so that book is like one of the only books that kind of details the history of that band and what were they doing around the time that they were writing this music. And there's a lot of mythology and lore about that particular album and what it means because um, it's a very, very cryptic album, but people love it. And so that book just talks about the history of the band and why were they writing about certain things? Why does this symbol show up um, pretty often? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. One of, the, um, one of the websites I actually really like for this kind of thing it's similar somewhat similar to the book but uh, the genius website with lyrics mm-hmm. where you can kind of just click on certain words and kind of see some of the history or some of the interpretations of what you know what the song is referring to and what the band or the mm-hmm. artist was thinking about or doing during the time that he wrote the song yeah yeah um, and if you need a lesson plan for an english class and take that with a grain of salt um poetry <laughs> unit have them do a genius comment for each line of a poem or something like that yep yep been okay. doing that yeah um yeah but we've genius actually is great. brought some hip-hop rap music into the class because those guys are those artists are all poets themselves so yeah some kendrick lamar maybe um cool so yeah. i like this and then yeah the other else? one and this is i'm not even done yet but it's just a huge book it's dune um oh wow you're reading movie, it. the movie's coming out in like a week or two um and so I started reading it, I think, earlier this summer um, and just have kind of plugged away. It's super long, um, but it's often regarded as like the predecessor to modern science fiction. Um, so I think Star Wars is probably the most famous science fiction story that pulls a lot of things that Dune was already doing in 1965 before Star Wars came out in 77. What is so? I I'm gonna be honest. I don't really. I've seen it. I know people talk about it, but I really have no idea what Dune is about. So, it's a lot. It think Game of Thrones, but in space. Hmm. So epic political spectrum of different families vying for power in the universe. Ooh. There's a planet called Arrakis that has this drug. They call it a drug that's the spice melange. And so that spice, if you take it, gives you like supernatural abilities, superpowers. Mm. Um, And so that spice is the most valuable asset in the universe. And all these families are fighting for control over that planet. And so the story is told from this um, boy's perspective, Paul, and his dad is one of the heads of these families and his family now controls the planet but as you can imagine, things kind of go awry and it's about kind of his journey, kind of navigating that complex scenario. It's a, a pretty 
is it easy to get through? Is it kind of a fast read or does it take some serious, intense focus to kind of digest this? There's an entire section, I think it's in the back of the book. So you can see like there's um, like definitions for words. Okay. So there's a dictionary at the back of the book to help you decipher what they're talking about. If you can get over the fact that you're not going to understand what every word means, then it's a fast read. Mm-hmm. But if you want to know, like, what is this weird word that I've never heard before? You're going to have to flip to the back, look it up, figure out what it means, and then um, go to the front again and start reading again. Sounds like a project. Um, it is. So watch the movie. What what inspired you to read this? Why? Because of the movie? The movie is a big one. Um, and I grew up watching Star Wars. Um, it's a huge part of the reason um, why my dad and I are, were so close growing up was he would show me cool movies. Um, like I saw Star Wars for the first time at the Senator Theater, which was an experience. Um, so I think I wanted to know like what was George Lucas thinking about leading up to the release of that movie and how did he write Star Wars? What was he trying to do? Awesome. So two book recs here. Um, beyond the Kendrick Lamar and the Kanye West album, any and the Grateful Dead. Any albums or music that we should listen to or put on our track list? Um, I'll do this one okay. in the airplane over the sea. Okay. Um, folky, but also has a little bit of punk influence on it. Um, the lyrics are beautiful. It's hard to understand what they're talking about, but um, there are theories that Jeff Mangum, who's the lead singer um, and kind of the head of Neutral Milk Hotel wrote it about his experience of reading Anne Frank's diary and uses a lot of things and imagery that shows up in Anne Frank's diary in the lyrics of the songs. Um, So it is a puzzle. It's not a, uh, it might not grip you the first time, but like any good album, it, it will find you at the right place at the right time. And so if you're listening to music and you want some headphone music this is a good headphone album headphone music love that yeah well alex thank you very much for coming on the podcast today it was awesome conversation Um, i learned a lot about you and uh hopefully our viewers whoever's watching this um learns a little bit about you and kind of the things that you're into and doing here but appreciate you coming on yeah thanks for your time awesome thank you chesra thanks see you later